Welcome to another edition of StoryCast, the official podcast of Story Church Colorado Springs. In this edition, we talk to Dr. William Patton Dodd, who is the Executive Director of Storytelling and Communications at the H.E. Butt Foundation in San Antonio, Texas. Enjoy the program. Patton and I have known each other for a long, long time. Um, he has been one of my closest friends for almost 30 years now. I know it means that we were best friends just before we were born. Um, but uh, Patton, you do a lot of work around raising awareness of uh, systems of inequity and injustice in the San Antonio area and beyond. So can you tell us a little bit about you know, maybe your background and, and, and your work there at the foundation? Yeah, so uh, at the foundation, I, I oversee communications for all the programs that the foundation runs, but I'm also kind of developing a program, um, a new program at the foundation that we call Storytelling for Narrative Change. And our intent with this uh, project is to um, change the narrative about why poverty and inequity exist and persist in the San Antonio area. San Antonio has... Uh, by some measures, the most extreme inequity in the United States. At least, at least it's come. It's been at the top of the list in a few years uh, in recent rankings. In terms of the wealth gap between its richest and its poorest neighborhoods, and it's a quickly growing uh, city. Actually, the data that just came out showed San Antonio is number two, just behind Phoenix for fastest growing cities in the U.S. right now. So, problems like this are going to, <clears throat> you know, continue to to haunt the city. And so, we're trying to address um, the audience that listens to us and which is a lot of like uh, leaders in San Antonio, business community, faith leaders in San Antonio about who their neighbor is and um, why, you know, why the neighborhoods across town are the way that they are. So we do that through making media. We do it through public events uh, and experiences like taking people on uh, kind of journeys through these neighborhoods and letting them have kind of firsthand encounters. Yeah, that's great. So can you just, for those who are maybe unfamiliar with the language, can you talk about what you, what you mean when you talk about like a system of inequity? Yeah. So um, I think of it, you know, uh, in terms of the difference between inequality and inequity. Inequality is often what people kind of enter into this conversation thinking about. Income inequality is kind of the most popular phrase, which um, is about outcomes, like, you know, kind of where people end up. Um, some people have more, some people have less. That's just a natural phenomenon, right? I mean, there's some, some, um, there's all kinds of different ways to explain the different outcomes that people have. Um, and equity is really about access, access to opportunity, fair treatment. It's about this kind of the systems that, um, that, uh, we all live with and the systems that produce really favorable outcomes for some people and really unfavorable outcomes for others. Um, we talk a lot in San Antonio about how in some parts of town, uh, kids have every imaginable opportunity to thrive in their lives, including, you know, safe and uh, dry uh, homes and uh, access to health care, access to good education, good schools, paved streets, you know, uh, sidewalks uh, where the water runs into drains instead of into homes, um, you know, good parks, every imaginable opportunity. In other parts of town, kids are blocked at every possible turn. There's, um, you know, breakdown in families and in neighborhoods and 
schools are a lot worse. Um, and that's a, that's a, uh, the differences in those neighborhoods is a difference in the systems, you know, the, the ways that they were created. There's a long history to these neighborhoods and why they are the way they are. The people did not create them themselves. They're kind of experiencing the consequences of decisions that were made long before them. And so that's, I mean, we could talk about this for hours, but maybe that's a one paragraph overview of the way sure. we think about inequity. Sure. Yeah. So you, you talk about the fact that these are, these are outcomes that these people are experiencing that they didn't have a voice in, in creating uh, and yeah. probably wouldn't look the way that they do had they had a voice. So talk about yeah. the history behind um, why some of these systems exist the way that they do. Well, if you had to ask me for a one word explanation of why we have so much inequity in the US, I would say racism. Um, the, these, these cities were designed um, by uh, racist policies. And I'm not saying necessarily that it's racism in the way that we sometimes talk about it as if, as in hatred of other people just because of the color of their skin. Um, although that's definitely part of what was driving these things. I'm talking about um, policies that existed. Like in San Antonio, you could not own, occupy, lease uh, a home uh, in certain parts of town uh, if you weren't white. And, and you can look on the code. What's that? And that's like in the city code or how does that manifest itself? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it was at times. I mean, it's, you know, it's been illegal since the, the Fair Housing Act uh, was passed in the middle of the last century. Um, but for the first, you know, 50, 70 years of the building of a city like San Antonio, um, the only people who could have access to the well-built neighborhoods were, were people who were white. And that was written in housing deeds. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, segregation by race uh, for housing was just the law of the land uh, in these cities. And there's consequences for that that go on for generation and generation. Right. And then the, those policies were kind of doubled down. Once, even though it was made illegal, in the middle of the last century after World War II, uh, the GI, GI Bill was introduced to uh, help the soldiers who were returning home um, to uh, get an education and, um, and make a life for themselves. And part of that uh, included, uh, you know, government-backed uh, mortgages to give people an opportunity to own a home. But, um, I mean, if you may have heard the term redlining, which is about how uh, banks at the time were using maps of their cities with red lines drawn around the neighborhoods that were full of brown and black people, and they just would not lend uh, to those people. So even though it was illegal in terms of you couldn't have a policy that no, uh, you know, black or brown people could live in certain neighborhoods, in effect, it was still mandated um, at the legal level or at the at the um, at the government level, and in the way the monetary system worked, um, it just prevented people who didn't look like me and you from owning homes in high opportunity areas. Yeah, so, I could, so for instance, I could afford the house. I from my income, I could want to live there, I could have the right credit score, I could have all the normal things that a bank would look at uh, until you looked at the color of my skin. Well, chances are you, you were, um, you may be individually like a striving and kind of overcoming as a, maybe an individual uh, African-American household. Um, but they weren't going to uh, lend money to you to live in the part of town that you were most likely to live in. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And moving from a black or brown neighborhood to a white neighborhood was, you know, dang near impossible uh, for most of the last century. 
or at least the first two thirds of the last century, um, either because of policies or just because of prejudice. So as you can see, like Patton actually just went back inside because the mosquitoes in Texas were eating him alive. Um, but we were, were talking about the idea of redlining, for instance. And um, I guess there's a question that maybe someone would ask, um, well, why would a brown or a black family want to live in a white neighborhood if they weren't if there, if there weren't healthy relations happening there ethnically, why would they even want to live there? And I think, I think I understand what you're saying is that it's not even necessarily an issue of social interaction so much as it is uh, social opportunities. So all of the educational opportunities, all of the better schools, all of the better um, municipal services, those were in those white neighborhoods. Is that accurate to say? That's right. I mean, at some level, you know, humans tend to sort with their own kind, and that does not always mean race. That means maybe just a lifestyle or um, values. Um, and again, at some level, that's, that's normal and natural and nothing that we would want to critique. Um, the problem is that the larger systems that determine things like quality of streets, quality of education, um, were, were set up to empower people who looked like me and you and to disempower and oppress people who did not look like me and you. And even, you know, um, even though uh, I, I think, I think what's challenging about this is that, I mean, I didn't grow up wealthy. I didn't grow up with a lot of access to opportunity and a lot of people like me uh, would say that like, look, what's the difference between me and someone who is, who is black. If I, I grew up poor, they grew up poor. I made it. Why can't they make it? Um, but I think that um, the more you think about this, the more you, especially the more you talk to and listen to um, our brothers and sisters uh, with black and brown skin, the more you learn about the roadblocks and the walls that they can hit at every turn in life. The, the, the issues of racism go way beyond just what's in our hearts. And right. they go even way beyond just, you know, uh, some of the larger things around housing that we're talking about. It's like at every level, it's kind of running through the system um, of the country and of the world. And I think that we're just grappling with this and coming to terms with just how deep this goes and how radically it has affected people's lives right now. Yeah, I think, I think that's a great way to, to frame it. And I, I just recently uh, read a concept um, called the birdcage in terms of like how we how we can look at and view racism. So if, if you were to sit, you know, put your face really up close to a birdcage and you, close enough where you can really just see one bar and look at the bird inside and think, oh, well, that's really easy for that bird to overcome. Like maybe there's a bar right here, but they could go around it or they could go over it or whatever. But that as you shift your perspective and see that, oh, not only there's just one bar vertically, but there are a ton of bars vertically. And there's also a ton of bars horizontally and you start to yeah. see the enclosure itself, you start to see yeah. the, the fallacy of the argument. Oh, well, um, well, I was poor too. Why? Because it's not just, it's not just a financial issue. It's not just a redlining issue. It's not just a yeah. color of skin issue. It's not just an education issue. It's not just uh, an yeah. enslavement issue. It's, it's all of these things combined. And yeah. uh, I, I love this quote, uh, uh, Tahanisi Coates talked about the idea that like racism is actually not the child of race. It's the, it's the father uh, mm -hmm. of 
Right. It's like we see race when we when we want to see race uh, and yeah. we're beneficial for ourselves or for you know whatever it is we're trying to procure. And I think that's a it's just a especially with everything going on in our nation right now. Uh, on our last episode, um, we talked about this from the concept of like the construct of race because we're really there really is only one human race biologically speaking uh genetically yeah. speaking from a dna standpoint from a dna standpoint you and i and every other human in the world are 99.9 percent identical and it's just that one tenth of one percent that defines your color of eyes and your your yeah. skin tone and your body type and you know your iq all these different things all happen in that one tenth of a percent and to me that is an example um, of, of God's creativity and how when we, we're all 99.9% .9 the same. We are all imprinted with the same image of God, which means we all have mm -hmm. the same intrinsic, sacred, holy value uh, and worth. Um, but even within that one tiny fraction of a percentage, the diversity of our lives, the differences between you and me and everyone else we know is it comes to full bloom and we can see our differences as strengths and as ways that we complement one another and ways that, that other people are beautiful um, in ways that we're not and vice versa. And we've got to learn mm -hmm. to sort of see those things for what they are and be willing to have, you know, the right conversations moving forward. So I, I don't mean to pontificate. I, I actually kind of wanted to lead into like, so as we, the only way to, to sort of understand these things is through conversations like this, um, is through informing and educating ourselves. Um, clearly, uh, protesting has a place. Um, I've said recently that protest um, helps to shape policy, public policy, and that is necessary and right and good. We do need to shift policy. And you're talking about some of those policies that need to be changed or that even have been changed and then just ignored. Um, and th But then conversation is what builds community and shared language shared experience over time is what builds culture so these conversations need to lean into community and lean into culture shift and that's where we really start to see the power of our identities at work for good so within that context um tell me a little bit about the way that you are going about telling some of these stories so that people can understand better um, I just realized because I'm looking at myself on Zoom that I'm wearing a, uh, a sweatshirt that is from one of our events. So maybe this is a good example. I did not, I wasn't like, yeah, this is, um, I, it's just my favorite sweatshirt. So um, I wasn't thinking uh, that I would bring this up. But this is called We Live Here. And this is a, you see a, a, a fist with a camera in it. This is, um, we partnered last year with a photography club um, of 12 year olds. Uh, on what's called the east side of San Antonio. The east side of San Antonio is the historically black um, part of town. And um, uh, there's an elementary school there called Washington Elementary, and uh, one of their teachers runs a photo club for the sixth grade. And um, he takes, every year, takes a group of kids through um, amazing training and photography, just telling them how to work a camera and helping them kind of develop a, a skill set that they can use in their lives. And in the second semester, he also teaches them about a social issue and has them document it. Last year, uh, the social issue that he had them work on was gentrification. 
So gentrification is this idea. I mean, it's used today as kind of like, it's kind of a way to describe a trending neighborhood. You know what I mean? A neighborhood where all the good branches and that kind of thing. Um, uh, but of course, gentrification literally means repeopling. Gentry means people. Gentrification is a movement of one group, people group into a neighborhood and the displacement of another people group. Yeah. And it's actually a pretty rare phenomenon, like um, in the literal sense, but the east side of San Antonio is one of the places in the U.S. where that's happening. Um, uh, the people who have been there for many, many decades, mostly black people, also some Hispanics are being uh, replaced right now by uh, upwardly mobile young white families. And um, so there's a lot we could say about that. Um, it's a complicated, complicated concept. Um, what drives it, you know, um, what the consequences of it are. Um, and, um, but he, this teacher was just teaching these kids about this kind of at a high level because it was happening to them in their neighborhood. They were literally experiencing it. It's in the very, very early stages right around this school. It, it has not been, there's no good brunch there yet, but it's starting to happen. It's a lot of distressed housing, but every like third or fourth house, someone has dropped in what we call a spaceship. Just a house that looks like it came from somewhere totally different, does not belong. And they're running Airbnbs out of, no one really wants to, most, most upperly mobile people don't want to live there yet because it's, seems a dangerous community. Um, so they're just, they're running Airbnb, Airbnbs and they're speculating. It's kind of the first wave of gentrification that's happening there. So we, we talked about this with the kids. They were documenting it with their, with their cameras as it was happening around them, taking incredible photos of their homes and these new homes and some of the new neighbors that were coming in and the old neighbors that had been there forever. And we decided to, to, to put, put on a photo show for them. So we got a big warehouse downtown San Antonio and put on an art show basically with about 70 of their photographs uh, all around the room and some music. And we called it, we live here because they're like, this is our neighborhood. We live here. Everyone's talking about it as a place of, as a place to move into the cool. It's what's going to be the next cool wave in San Antonio, but we're already living here. And it was cool because it was not, um, confrontational but it was hard like the content of the program that night was not um, sort of punching people in the face for speculating in that neighborhood or for not being uh, you know um, uh, aware of the consequences of gentrification it was more like an invitation to a conversation and it was hard because the realities that people were facing was hard we we marketed it as like a one-night pop-up art show featuring kids and the voices of kids. And so a couple hundred people came out and the people who came out live in the nicer part of town for the most part. We targeted, targeted we did our marketing to people who live in areas of the area town that I live in, which is the, which is the northern suburbs. And, um, and uh, we invited them in and a lot of people showed up and they, you know, they were taken in by the kids, the stories of the kids. The kids also did poetry that night. It was very like positive and kind of uplifting but the undertone of it was challenging. And we had stats up on the walls about what's happening in these neighborhoods. Um, there was a couple hard, like two or three minute talks uh, from the teacher and from one of the students uh, about displacement. And so it was kind of a mixture of like welcoming and inviting and also really challenging. Yeah. And that's kind of what we try to do with a lot of our work, whether it's an event like we live here or um, I do these, um, for lack of a better word, tours. I hate calling them tours because it, it's, you know, uh, uh, 
not like a zoo-like experience, but we, we invite people onto these sort of half-day or day-long journeys to re-narrate San Antonio to them by um, uh, driving them around and, and getting them out of their cars into these neighborhoods that maybe they've lived there their whole lives, but they've never wanted to venture into before. And they have first-hand encounters with people in those areas, people who've lived there for a long time, people who love those areas, people who are working and ministering them in those areas. And by the end of the day, they are, I think, both inspired and very, very heavy about the realities that they're facing. Um, but also kind of encouraged that like there's a, I can go to those places and I can get to know people there. You know what I mean? It's, it's like, I, um, I mean, I've, you know, my background is in journalism and I've, and I've, and I, I believe in, you know, hard hitting investigative journalism. Um, but this is just another kind of storytelling. It's a little more personal. It's a little more of an invitation into a conversation. It's still difficult, but it's also hospitable. Yeah. I really like that concept. I'm just kind of chewing on it a little bit as you were talking of welcoming environments that become, or that are also intentionally challenging. Yeah. And it makes me think of the church and what um, can be healthy in the church uh, is yeah. to create a welcoming space that is intentionally challenging people to grow as well. And I wonder if we have, you know, if there are times where we, we err on, you know, doing either of those instead of both of them. You know, like we're really concerned about making people comfortable, so we're not willing to challenge them or ourselves, or we're really willing to challenge people, but we're not really willing to make them feel welcome. And it yeah. seems to me that in order to have conversation, you need to have both. You for need sure. to have space that is safe for people to have conversation. Um, but also safe to have challenging conversation. Yeah. I, I love that you're doing that. Yeah, I, um, you know, I, I don't know that we always do it successfully, but that's, that's always the goal. I mean, we, we, um, we, it's a fine balance. How do we like, how do we name hard truths and get people to do, you know, really difficult self-examination about their own lives and the way that they're responsible to their neighbor? without turning them off. And I'm never sure if we're quite hitting it right. Like we've done it right sometimes and not so much other times, but that's always the goal. Yeah. So along those lines, you also, uh, as a foundation, do, uh, this year is different because of COVID, but yeah. you run a, a camp, which is actually, you're actually at uh, yeah. Lady Lodge right now, right? Can you tell yeah. me a little bit more about that and how you use that as an yeah. as well? That is actually the main thing that the HE Bud Foundation has done for, for many, many years. The work that I'm part of is kind of a, as I mentioned before, kind of a new wave of programming that we're building. But our, our legacy work and kind of what we're known for in South Texas is, um, is uh, a retreat center called Laity Lodge, which, yes, is where I'm at right now, which is an adult um, ecumenical Christian retreat center um that is wonderful and everyone who's watching this should look it up and come sometime once we're up and running again uh it's spectacular um uh and also last year i was there and you took me on a tour and it's it's beautiful i think my one of my favorite memories is driving through the river to get there yeah uh, yeah the creek bed sits there it's it's really really lovely and beautiful yeah it's yeah it's it's a spectacular place um and uh, as offshoots of the Laity Lodge, uh, over the decades, back in the 60s and 70s um, and 80s, we built, a, or the foundation built a, a youth camp, Laity Lodge youth camp, 
which is a two-week summer camp that happens, um, I think, six times a summer. I should know this. Um, and then a family camp, which happens for, for five or six weeks every summer and then every other weekend throughout the year. So youth camp and family camp, this adult retreat center. And then what we call the outdoor school, uh, which is um, what it sounds like. It's, a, it's, a, it's for Texas public schools to come for like two or three-day retreats to, for kids to get some education about the environment. And that focuses mostly on some of the neighborhoods that we're talking about. Um, uh, kids from little opportunity uh, zones of San Antonio and Austin. Um, and then finally, we have what's called the HD Butt Foundation Camp, which basically makes all these facilities available free of charge um, to people uh, who serve you know, people with challenges, like the nonprofit community, churches. And that's most of what... Um, uh, of what the foundation does in terms of just the population that it serves about 20, 22,000 people a year wow. come to the, come to the Canyon called the Canyon through the HGB foundation camp. So, um, that's, yeah, like I said, that's, <clears throat> that's kind of the, that's the legacy work of this organization. This property, it's a 2000 acre property in the hill country, about two hours Northwest of San Antonio, uh, about three hours uh, West of Austin. And, um, uh, and, for years and years and years, this was kind of, you know, the heartbeat of the organization. It really still is, but we're starting to do work that's that's rooted in San Antonio and in this rural Texas area that we serve here. That's more around uh, community development. So we're addressing issues like poverty, mental health issues, and those kinds of social ills. Yeah, that's great. Um, I can also vouch that if they're in the area, that you can find them the best uh, breakfast tacos they've ever had. Oh, yeah. Yes, and they're in San Antonio and not in Austin, but we do have mind-blowing breakfast tacos. Throw a rock and hit a great taqueria in yeah. San Antonio. Yeah. yeah, I can I can attest to that. Yeah. Um, so, how do you how do you feel like you are? Do you feel like you are making a difference? Do you feel like there are some some things that you've done over the last several years? Like, oh, I can point to this and this that feel like they were you know, mile markers on the journey that like, this is actually starting to affect some, some change in positive ways. Wow. That is, um, a hard question to answer. We have a lot of anecdotes. Like we, we write and publish stories. We put out other kinds of media. We're working on some audio journalism stuff right now. We do these events. Like I told you the feedback from those is always powerful. People say, I did not know this. I, I, I've learned a lot. I have a lot of thinking to do. What more, what more learning can I do? They're always asking for more resources for you know, reading and learning, things to watch. Um, I think that indicates some change, just the willingness to learn. Um, uh, definitely people are always uh, wanting to give and so we can kind of direct their, their dollars if they want to give to the nonprofits that we introduce them to, that kind of thing. We know those things are happening, but the bigger change, the change that could really impact some of these neighborhoods long-term that's that's a long road, and we're going to be on it for a while. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually gonna we're gonna have another guest on uh, on Storycast in a couple of weeks here, uh, who who you also know. His name is Rob Stennett, and he uh, has a master's in film from USC, and has produced. He's a you know award winning author, and has produced all kinds of productions over the years. And we were talking a little bit today about what we might you know talk about it in our discussion and. The, I think the hook that we're going after is the idea, like the question, does story really have the power to shift the fabric of culture? And I think, 
I think that's a that's a fascinating question. I like to believe that it does, but um, but you, here you are talking about some anecdotes and some some stories that you guys are experiencing. Do you feel like the stories that you're telling have that power? Um, I think stories have that power. Uh, whether the particular stories that we're telling um, always have that power. Um, you know, I think we, we have hits and misses, you know what I mean? It's a bit yeah. like kind of working on your batting average. I'll tell you that one thing that we're learning is that um, we don't have to be the ones to tell these stories. It's about elevating voices of the people whose stories they are. We've started to shift to that more and more. It's not Pat and Dodd's byline. It's, you know, meeting someone. In fact, this happened to me just a few months ago. I was interviewing this woman whose story was fascinating and she was also really eloquent Mm. and just a good talker and a good storyteller. So at one point in the interview, I just said, you know, I think you're the one who should be writing this story. And she was like, nope, never going to do it. And then I asked her again and she's like, well, let me get back to you. And then I called her and she cried and like, she was like, I don't think I can do it. It's really vulnerable to tell your story. Yes. But eventually she wrote, she had never written before. She's probably 35 years old. Eventually she wrote and she wrote a really beautiful story that I could not have written, you right. know, about her life. And so um, I think we're learning that. I, 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 worked, I was working on a project earlier today that's an audio journalism project, but we're gonna try to put recorders in the hands of these kids, like the ones I was talking about earlier so they can document their own lives and we'll figure out what to do with that raw audio. But I think that's kind of where this is going is I think, I think, you know, we don't have to be the storytellers. The stories need to be told. Um, but we want to make sure the stories are coming from the right voices as well. Yeah, that's really good. And I, one of the things that we talk about around here is that, um, that your story has the power or it was the key that is going to unlock hope in someone else, but it is, it's sort of sacred space, right? Like it's very personal and we're not always comfortable with telling our story. And I think maybe part of the reason that we're not comfortable telling our story is that maybe we've tried in the past and been met with resistance or tried yeah. in the past and been met with judgment or, uh, yeah. or, or have, or, or the difficulty of trying to unpack, you know, the backstory of your life. So someone will understand the experience that you're trying to, to represent honestly is exhausting and I've, I've yeah. talked to uh, several of my of my friends who are, who, are, who are people of color over the last several weeks and that's one of the commonalities that I'm hearing is that it's it's exhausting to be a person of color in America because you're always having to justify yourself you're always having to, yeah. um, to sort of make up for someone else's lack of understanding and you know in, in my own way in like very minor ways I just know how difficult it is to like if you have an understanding of something and you want to, to take someone to a new place, it's so difficult to get them there, not because you can't explain how to get from here to there, but because you can't explain the backstory that led you to here oftentimes. And, you know, there's culture is, a, is an incredibly different or excuse me, incredibly difficult concept. I've, I read, you know, uh, Andy Crouch says that next to nature, culture is the most, the second most complex term in the English language. So culture is obviously very, very complex, but a, a simple definition of it or a working definition is that it's shared experience and language and stories over time. And in order to, if we're going to make a difference in culture, if we're going to make a difference in one another's lives, 
we actually have to be willing to sit in one another's lives, which means we have to be willing not only to hear one of their stories, but like, I love that you're empowering the voice of other people so they can tell their story. Like they can tell it, like you said, in a way that, that you can't, you may be able yeah. to objectively come from the outside and say, Hey, this point and this point and this moment are really powerful. You should focus on those things. But, um, it's, it's vulnerable. And I'm, I'm grateful that there are people out there like you that are, that are trying to empower the voices of other people. Cause I think that's part of what needs to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, all need to be in a listening and learning posture. The stuff we talked about at the top of this conversation around inequity, it's really complicated. And, and um, uh, I think it only really begins to make sense. And you can really only, I think, develop a sufficient even desire to understand some of the deeper systematic issues that we were talking about when you know people who have suffered the consequences. Right. And yeah. you come to the I think, hear them and love them. I yeah. think there's something there. Like you're talking about how these are really complex, really nuanced issues. And we live in a society in a culture that doesn't do nuance well. Like we want bullet points. We want categorization. We want yeah. 30 seconds or less. We want black, white, you know, right, left, good, bad. Those are, those are the categories we function best with. And that's, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, that's how our brains work, right? Like we're always looking how to survive and thrive. And we're always looking for ways to save energy. If you listen to like the story brand stuff out there. Yeah. So within that context of a culture that doesn't do nuance well, how do you, or, or they're looking for a quick soundbite or a quick answer. How do we tell stories in such a way that, that help people understand the need for nuance in complex issues like this? I mean, this is a question that I literally stay up late at night thinking about and wake up thinking about in the morning. I don't know. We are trying to do it in all kinds of ways. I mean, my background a few years ago, the first thing we, the first like attempt we made at doing what all this we're talking about with you is running a nonprofit newsroom doing kind of investigative work on these issues on, on the policies in San Antonio. And, you know, we had, we were effective at generating news and um, at, at breaking some news in some cases and doing some important work on the legacy of these, of these terrible policies in San Antonio and how they were affecting people. However, you could see in our analytics that we were preaching to the choir, like the, the, the people that were reading that material were, material where the people who are sort of already know these things and just enjoy reading about it yeah. and may need better information to do the work that they're doing. I think that's important work too, but it wasn't what we set out to do. We set out to grow the conversation and to add new people to the conversation. And we weren't really doing that. Um, so we, we wound down that project and, and are doing what I've been describing to you tonight and so, an approach to storytelling that's much more personal and um that's much more hospitable there may there's some surprises and some difficult truths in it but um i also think that like it's a mix of it's the in-person stuff is, i'm talking about is important but it's also a mix of media and um and it has to be you know authentically done i feel like when i go out and interview someone these days um and I sit down to either write or make a video about them or produce some audio journalism on them. I've told my wife a lot that I feel like I'm, I am trying to 
learn how to write all over again or learn how to make video all over again every time I do this because the old models that I was trained in, I don't think are really effective here. I'm trying to win someone's attention to, to something that they don't really want to think about. It's going to appear in their Facebook feed or their Instagram and there's a million options for th things for them to click on and I'm trying to get them, I'm trying to win their attention to this, to this thing and to this cause and to this person that I'm talking about and it's a creative, um, it's a really a creative gauntlet to try to figure out how to do that. So, um, I mean, there's a lot, I could give you a lot of detailed examples of ways that we've tried it, but I'm just telling you that like, I'm asking that question all the time. How do we do this? How do we do it in a fresh way? How do we do it in a way that really make people pay attention? It's really tough. Yeah. Well, and I, I've wondered recently, I just, I've noticed in my own circles that um, you and I have talked about this idea before that, Oftentimes I find myself more conservative than my liberal friends and more liberal than my conservative friends. And as a result, like for instance, my Facebook feed is a little nuts sometimes. Like I get yeah. some stuff way on the fringe of both sides and trying to sort of navigate a healthy balance in those things is, is tricky enough in and of itself. But one of the things that I have noticed, uh, particularly over this last um, you know several weeks of of racial unrest and with the George Floyd stuff, and the Ahmaud Aubrey stuff, and uh, the, the killing in Atlanta this last week, like I have, I've noticed a a new level of uh, of a awareness and b um, maybe even a willingness to have conversations yeah. about some of these things that I haven't yeah. seen from some of some of the people in those circles before and. So I guess I would ask you, are, do you think that's accurate? Do you think that we're in a moment where, you know, the phrase that keeps coming to mind is like the collective consciousness has been sort of pierced enough that people are willing to expand the conversation? Um, or yeah, yeah what, what do you think about that? Yeah, it sure looks that way. Um, I, I was pretty frustrated at first at the social media response. I have a, a lot of white evangelical friends who were speaking out boldly um, about these issues. And I was glad they were, but I was also like, it's pretty late y'all. Like, this is like not new where, you know, I don't remember you speaking out, you know, during Ferguson five years ago. And I was a little frustrated at first, like, come on. Um, and they're like, you know, asking, you know, they're, they're talking about books like how to be an anti-racist and tiny coats and like, books that like books and and public intellectuals that have been with us for a while and are just now discovering them and so I was like you know frustrated but after I calmed down I realized this is it's good like it's good that there's a hunger for this and that the conversation is happening and if this is the thing that made more people speak up and made more people curious to know more and to do the work of coming to more understanding um, then, then I'm glad it's, it's late, but, um, but I'm glad that, uh, that there is kind of a groundswell. The trick is going to be, will it last? Is this just a, a, a moment that people are experiencing for a couple of weeks now? Um, I honestly don't know. I mean, we, as you, as you were saying earlier, we, we are, we do not have great attention spans, myself included, um, in this country, um, and in this day and age. And so, uh, to to really think about this stuff and to really learn about it and get, get kind of smart about it takes real time. Um, the good thing is, is that there's a million great resources like podcasts and documentaries and 
people like Ta-Nehisi and, you know, Nicole Hannah-Jones, and we are living in kind of a, an era where there's incredible black and brown voices that are, that are writing and making art and making media. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's easy to find really, really rich material, material right now for people who want to learn. Yeah, so for somebody who's saying, hey, I, you, you're right, I, I didn't speak up at Ferguson. I was, you know, waiting for the rest of the story at that point or whatever, but like, but the George Floyd thing put me over the top. Like seeing nine minutes of that kind of terror um, was, was, was what finally put me over the top. And I said, no, this is enough. This, this can't go on. For those people who are new to the conversation, who are, who are uh, well-intentioned but but self-described as naive in terms of the issues in, that are at play here, what are some of the yeah. best, like sort of, you know, I hate to say it this way, but like you know, one-on-one entry-level, you know, get me a label, yeah, no, right, that you would recommend. Um. Yeah, I can give you a bunch. I think that one thing that I think about a lot is a podcast episode called The Problem We All Live With. Um, I think it was on This American Life, but if you Google The Problem We All Live With, it's actually the name of a famous Norman Rockwell painting that you've probably all seen of a, of a black girl walking, uh, short black girl walking with tomatoes having been thrown at her that are sputtered on the wall behind her and you see like military policemen next to her. That's the name of that painting but it was used for the title of a podcast that Nicole Hannah Jones worked on um, about school segregation. Mm -hmm. And it's really dramatic and therefore easy to listen to. Um, uh, powerful and painful, but a very good hour of audio journalism. Yeah. Um, I think a, a, an, a, one of the most important essays and works of journalism in the last 10 years is The Case for Reparations by Ta-Nehisi Coates which appeared in the Atlantic, I think in 2010, I'm not sure what year it was, yeah. but you can read, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of like 500 page books, but that's probably a 5,000 word article yeah, that you can read in an hour or so. That is a good education of redlining and a lot of the stuff around housing inequity that we were talking about earlier tonight. Yeah. Um, so that's, that goes down. That's tough, but it goes, you know, it's, it's short enough that it goes down pretty easy. Um, uh, I'll just, then I'll just name a couple movies. Uh, 13th, which is on Netflix, which a bunch of people have watched uh, of late. I've seen it trending on Netflix. Um, uh, is fantastic. Um, um, and the uh, I Am Not Your Negro, uh, which is available on Amazon Prime. Raul Peck is the name of the documentarian. It is a masterpiece uh, documentary. Yeah. Um, and it's about James Baldwin. And that's kind of where I would, that's actually the first thing that came to mind for me is like read James Baldwin. He's just this, you know, he's he died, I think it's 63 or 68, um, you know, decade, uh, quite, a, quite a while back. Um, and his novels and his criticism, especially a book called The Fire Next Time, are just classic American works. But the movie, I Am Not Your Negro, is a great place to start. It's his voice. Actually, it's the voice of Samuel L. Jackson reading to James Baldwin. Um, but a documentary about him and, his, and his, the last work he was going to do. Uh, that he passed away before he was able to finish is really powerful. So I can keep going. I've got like 50 of these, um, but that's a good place to start. That's one of the ones that I, I saw uh, recently, uh, saw it earlier well, when it came out and then noticed it's, it's been free on it, uh, on Netflix yeah. as well right now is uh, Just Mercy. Uh, yeah. Understand sort of the, the justice system, particularly in the South. Yeah. 
great. Group that is stacked against it. That those are that was a, a personal one. Like I think uh, great, uh, great book too. Slave, um, the you know Amistad, any of those like any of those things that kind of help us understand. You know the, the this isn't something I think you, you your frustration is well founded and they're like and it's not even it doesn't go back to Ferguson it doesn't just go back to the civil rights movement it right. doesn't go back to the nineteenth century yeah. this goes back four hundred years um, yeah. just American history and the way that we have conquered and enslaved people is something that needs to be needs to be dealt with and yeah. we I know those are not easy pills to swallow. Uh, yeah. And I, I don't mean to be flippant about it or cavalier in any way, but I, I think those are issues that we really do have to wrestle with. And even though, so so what if I wasn't part of my ancestors' decisions or, you know, whatever 400 years ago, I still live under, um, just like as when we started out tonight, you talked about the neighborhoods and the conditions in which people live that have have provided them disadvantage um, because of 400 years of history. You and I, or people that look like you and I, live um, on the other side of that spectrum, you know, where we, we, have, we didn't personally engage in those things necessarily, but we live with the benefit of those things over the last 400 years. And it's, if nothing else, it's important for us to recognize that and, and be willing to have some empathy and, um, and I think stories, um, I think articles and essays and anecdotes, movies, those have the power for us to sort of go, oh, okay, I have a little bit better emotional understanding of this now. That doesn't make me an expert, doesn't mean that I'm gonna solve all the world's problems, but at least it positions me to begin to, you know, be willing to have the right conversations with people that I know and maybe be more intentional about what those conversations look like moving forward. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, like I said before, I think that one of the things we really have going for us in this moment, and maybe one of the reasons that this moment won't just burn out, that will continue to be a, a real paradigm shift for American culture, is that we do have all these incredible resources that have been produced in recent years and that are still being made by a generation of really brilliant people who are working on this stuff. And so it's, you know, you could spend two hours on YouTube and get an education that would have been really hard to come by, you know, just a few years ago. Right. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah. So, I guess that's the other side of the question. Then is, you know, what? It's pretty easy to get into paralysis of analysis with so much that's out there, um, so many voices to listen to. And are there any? Uh, I don't know. What are there any pitfalls in that? If you're trying to gain a better understanding, is there? Are there some things that you should avoid in in, in either your approach or in particular resources? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that it's, um, I think you should avoid um, checking out too early when it's confusing and difficult or just feels like you're reading something that's coming from another language, especially if you're, if you're someone who's just to be brass, to use brass tacks, if you're, if you're white and comfortable and you're reading about these issues from the perspective of someone who is black or brown, um, you might find yourself being offended or frustrated or accused and feeling shameful. Yeah. And I would say, I would say just to ex maybe just to expect those emotions, that feeling of shame, it, it's not 
you know, meant to make you individually shameful, but it will make you feel that way. And I think that sometimes people want to run away from the conversation at that point because they think, you know, I didn't do this. I didn't, I didn't create this problem for people. Why am I being blamed for it? You're not, it's, it's not that simple. You're not being blamed. And I think that difficult emotion um, should just be something to anticipate and to sit with it and just to keep, you know, keep learning. So avoid checking out when you, when you, when you hit that shame point. I would say, or maybe this, isn't something to, maybe this is not something to avoid, but just something to try to choose to do is, there's a lot of talk these days about decolonizing your bookshelf, which just basically means, you know, thinking about what perspectives are you listening to and how many other perspectives are you listening to look just like you look. Yeah. And there's something to be said for just maybe diversifying your bookshelf is, is, a, is a, a, a softer way of putting it. But, um, you know, make eight of the next 10 books you read or movies you watch or podcasts you listen to be from people who don't, who don't look like you and who come from a different class and a different system, a different upbringing. Um, just absorb it. You know what I mean? Just be a sponge. Don't make any quick decisions about it, but just start listening to those voices. I think that can be really exciting and interesting and enjoyable because um, the world is a complicated and bountiful place filled with people who have had just an array of experiences. And I think it can be kind of like, you know, um, I think it can be entertaining actually to kind of encounter these voices, but it's worth thinking about how many of the people you listen to, the people who make your movies, make your podcasts, write, write the books that you read, make the TV shows that you read, that you watch look just like you do and trying to diversify that a little bit. Right. Yeah. I I just recently came across some stats about that. You know, 95% of the people who make movies made, 95 of the top 100 movies made in, you know, a few years ago were made by white males. And the 85% of the, uh, of the people who make decisions about the music we listen to are male. And 84% of, uh, of college professors are, uh, are white. Uh, 82% of teachers are white. Uh, the U.S. Congress is, you know, close to 90% white. The the uh, the presidential cabinet is 91% white. The number of people on the Forbes, you know, 100 list are, you know, all these all these obvious um, power centers or influence centers are controlled by by people who are typically white males, and which makes me like, oh crap, <laughs> but I'm a white male. What do I do with that? And um, and I think that's the, you're you're alluding to that a little bit. Don't don't you don't have to necessarily feel personal shame about that. If, now, if you've done something that has 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 sure. been offensive, or you have have participated in activities that are yeah. are unjust, or like, yeah, you should you should rectify that. You should make that right. But I think one of the things that we miss, particularly in the Christian faith, is that we're we're so focused rightly on our reconciliation of ourselves to God vertically, that is absolutely a, a singular tenant of, of the gospel, but another singular tenant, maybe the two, I mean, it, Jesus said this, love God with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself, which means we're to be reconciled to him and to one another. And so God's plan of redemption and reconciliation is for, vertical and horizontal, and it may be, Maybe the greatest act of empathy in history is the incarnation, is, is Jesus' willingness and desire to come and live like we live, 
to experience the things we experience, to walk in our shoes, to be tempted as we were tempted, all of those things, that is the example that we're to follow, is to, is to love God. And then it takes time and energy and effort to love one another. And there's lots of scriptural stories with, you know, with whether it's the woman at the well or the Good Samaritan, or you know, there's all kinds of different places where Jesus is very specifically addressing racial issues that we we sometimes are, are those things are lost on us because we're 2,000 years separated from the text, but these are not mm-hmm. new issues. Um, and they're things that we, we, as people of faith, are required to wrestle with. It's not just about my relationship with Jesus and do I get to go to heaven or not. It is, it is partially about that, but it is also about my relationship with others and how I manage those things well. Yep. Yeah, I mean, what comes after uh, Jesus saying, love Lord your God, all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself is a really um, a question that was meant to trip him up. You know, well, then who is my neighbor? And Jesus responds with a story that actually invokes everything we've been talking about tonight. Yeah. It invokes race and class yeah. and othering and coming across differences and being surprised by who heroes are. Yeah. Um, so sitting with that story over and over again for the rest of our lives is also something we can all do, yeah. you know, in response to all these things. Yeah, I actually really love, love is the wrong word. I, it was really fascinating for me. I, I preached on that scripture uh, segment a couple of years ago. And, uh, and what stood out to me is, you know, we've all heard the story of the Good Samaritan, right? We've, and we know that it's the professional clergy people that passed him by, not just passed him by, but they went to the other side of the road and ignored this man. And then the Samaritan comes along, who is racially different um, and and despised by the Jewish people. He comes along, and he's the one that helps him. And the part that stood out to me the most this last time I studied it was that when Jesus said, who then was the neighbor? And the Pharisee, he's he's questioning, he, or I can't remember if it's the Pharisee or the rich young ruler, but he says, he says, who then is your neighbor? He can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He said, oh, right. That right. one that helped. there's there's this almost linguistic yes. distancing even in the answer even when he gets it he still can't say you can you can sense the yes. racism taking place in that moment and so it's yeah. like okay how do we manage that how do we deal with these issues of the heart that have been they've been part of the human condition for a long 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 time how do we manage that well yeah. And I, I think the answer, or part of the answer, is that we, we begin to have these right conversations be will, and humble enough to listen. I think you said it earlier, like just to be finding, your, finding ways to be in a listening posture, create listening devices, create opportunities to learn and to be humble enough to go, okay, my experience is not all of the experiences. That's right. I think that's right. I think that, and then you mentioned the incarnation, which is about presence, being present to people and Sometimes that's hard to do and it requires sacrifice. Um, but I think that's the sacrifice that's required, especially of people like me and you right now and in the years ahead. Yeah. So um, I, I've been kind of playing with this idea, like what is, what is something in the midst of all the things that you're doing right now that's giving you hope? Hmm. Um, what is something that is giving me hope? I, when I first started this work, I was really nervous to go into these neighborhoods that are the most troubled neighborhoods in San Antonio 
And now I see that that's where all the hope is. Because um, there are people who are living and working in those areas on the front lines of these issues that are just valiant people and that are doing incredible work, taking care of their community. Um, and I find a lot of hope from thinking about the leaders that I've met who come from these neighborhoods and who I've gotten to know in the last, uh, in the last couple of years. Um, and the lives they're living um, are just remarkable to me. They really believe in their people and they really believe in overcoming and they fight through all kinds of challenges, you know, just to, to take care of their own. Um, nothing can get them down, even though they face some of the hardest challenges you can imagine. Right. Um, yeah, I think that's probably the best answer I can give you. Just, yeah. For those of you who are, who are tuning in, thank you for, um, for taking your time to be here. Thank you, Patton, for being here, um, for the work that you're doing. Um, if you would like to hear more stories like this, uh, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast, uh, like uh, and share this uh, on the social media channels that you uh, use the most. And we look forward to engaging more with stories that change lives here on StoryCast. Next time, we will be talking to Nolan Evil, who is a semi-professional basketball player, just graduated um, from college as a Division Three phenom, and is navigating the world right now, trying to figure out how to live out his story as a basketball player and as a believer in Christ and how those things intersect in his life. So... Uh, looking forward to having you again here on StoryCast, and we'll see you guys next time. Hey, thanks again for joining us on StoryCast, where we tell stories that change lives. We'd sure love it if you would hit the like and subscribe buttons and go ahead and share this with any friends that you think might find it valuable. We look forward to seeing you next time on StoryCast.